Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Where's my murder mile? <laughs> oh, sweetie, this is your murder mile. No, it's not. It's all icky. <laughs> oh, darling, please try it. You might like it. I won't. But it's new. I don't like new. But it's different. I don't like different. I know, Treacle Sponge. <laughs> These are mini miles. A brand new, fun-packed weekly podcast full of true crime trivia for you to enjoy whilst Michael writes the new Murder Mile multi-part series. But I want it now! I know, (laughs) Sherry Pie! But if he writes another 65 episodes of his award-nominated podcast having been cruelly beaten by his old employer, the BBC, which he's definitely still not bitter about, if he wrote all those again with no break, he'll go gaga! Remember last time... When he cancelled the show, ate his own feet, renamed himself Lordy Coot McCootface of Shitsville, and ran down Downing Street smearing doo-doo, spraying piddle, and doing windmills with his willy. Yeah? So be a brave little boy and give it a try. <laughs> okay. I don't like it! Oh, suck <laughs> Ah, that's better. Kids, eh? So if you enjoyed series like The Blackout Ripper and The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place, Murder Mile will be rolling out several new multi-part series just like those across the year ahead, with the next multi-part series plopping into your ears in May. But before that... There's this. Friends, welcome to Mini Mile, your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. This week, we'll ask what are the favourite drinks of murderers? What is luminol? How many different types of killing are there? What's the origin of the phrase, sweet fuck all? We'll also read a fascinatingly dull letter from an infamous serial killer. And we'll hear how Samuel Furness managed to die twice. And with only seven weeks until the brand new Murder Mile multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Mini Mile. Let's kick off with a little How Do You Do? By learning more about some infamous serial killers and murderers, on a more social level. This week, drink. What is their preferred tipple? Dennis Nielsen, dubbed the kindly killer, 
so-called because he would lure homeless men back to his Muswell Hill lair with the promise of a meal, a place to sleep, a pleasant chat and a little libation. Nielsen's favourite drink was Captain Morgan's Black Label Rum, which he mixed with full-fat Coke, ice, but more importantly, no slice. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley dubbed the Moors murderers, as in the early 1960s they murdered five young children by luring them to the Moors, murdering them and burying them, many of whom have never been found. Now Ian Brady liked to believe that he was sophisticated. He liked white wine, his favourite being a German hock. Now I've done my research and the only German hock white wine that was available in the north of England in the 1960s was Blue Nun. If you're British, you're probably laughing because Blue Nun is one of those crappy white wines that normally you would take to a dinner party if you didn't like your host. Now, when Brady was alone, he wouldn't drink white wine. It was, he was a bit of a... He liked to show off in front of his girlfriend, Myra Hindley. But when he was alone, he would be partial to brewing his own home brew, which he would make in a big steel drum using vegetable scraps, white wine, sugar and alcohol. Now, conversely, Myra Hindley, she would prefer to drink, when she was without Ian Brady, rum and coke. Dr. Harold Shipman, dubbed Dr. Death, the infamous Hyde GP, who in early 2000 was found guilty of murdering 15 patients and having committed suicide before his trial, it was later confirmed that he had murdered at least 218 victims, and that list is still growing today it is estimated that he has murdered at least 450 victims over a 25-year period. Now, when he wasn't being a GP and murdering people, he liked to relax after a hard day with a gin and tonic. That is a Gordon's gin, an Indian tonic with ice and a slice. John Reginald Halliday Christie, also known as Reg from the other side of Tenrillington Place. Now, he was quite partial to Stingo Yorkshire beer, it's a working class beer which is still made today by the Sam Smith's Brewery. It's quite a hoppy beer and although back then it was quite a working class drink, today it's very exclusive. I tried it very recently in a pub and it cost £13 for a one pint bottle. And I have to tell you, it tasted bleh. John George Haig, also known as the Acid Bath Murderer. Now he rarely drank. But occasionally he would have a glass of wine with his dinner when he was amongst company. That would be red wine with meat, white wine with fish, or a sherry in polite company. But never ever would he drink beer. He considered it vulgar. Which is kind of ironic, coming from a man who dissolved five people in vats of sulfuric acid. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Now, he was a truck driver, and he opted for whatever drinks were the cheapest or whatever was available in the pub he visited that night when he was touring around the country. Now, he was very much a beer drinker. I've done my research, and British people will love this. Um, the drinks that... <laughs> the beer that he would drink around that era were Skull, Carling Black Label, Harp, Hofmeister, and McEwen's. Some familiar names there from the 1970s. As well as topping off the night with a very neat shot a famous grouse whiskey, or his other favourite, rum and coke. You can see there's a theme here. Anthony Hardy, the Camden Ripper, a sexual sadist who murdered three women not too many years ago, and he particularly liked rum and coke. There it is, rum and coke again. Only he liked it in very lethally high quantities. He was quite a big man. He had quite a capacious appetite for alcohol. 
and he really didn't care what kind of rum it was, he would normally go for the supermarket's cheapest. Stephen Port, also known as the Grinder Killer, a serial rapist and serial killer who murdered at least four young men in Barking, East London, by drugging his victims who he had met on Grinder, the gay sex app, with GHB, the date rape drug. Now Stephen Port, the Grinder Killer, was quite partial to a glass of red wine, but his other favourite was Red Bull energy drinks. Gordon Frederick Cummings, the Blackout Ripper, the spree killer from 1942, who brutally slaughtered four women and attempted to kill two others in just four days, who you remember from my series, The Blackout Ripper. According to my research, he was a big fan of Harwood's Canadian rye whiskey, into which he added just a splash of water. A man of style there. Beverly Allett, the spree killer, also dubbed the Angel of Death. The Lincolnshire nurse who was charged with murdering four children, attempting to murder three others, and GBH to six others, as over a 59-day period in 1991, she injected them with lethal doses of insulin and also air bubbles. Now, interestingly, uh, her father used to work for a winery and her favourite drink was red wine. I've tried to find out what brand it was. I couldn't find it out, but it seems to be a cheap Merlot. Fred and Rose West, the killer couple from Cromwell Street in Gloucestershire. Now, they murdered over 13 people over a 20-year period. They would torture them, kidnap them, rape them, all within the House of Horrors of which they were murdered. Now, looking into research of their lives, earlier in his life, this detail kind of interested me. Fred West very much didn't like drinking. He actually preferred grapefruit juice to beer. But later in life, this would develop, and he would become quite partial to ales from the West Country, a particular favourite being flowers. Whereas Rose West, his wife, although she would drink spirits when amongst company with the men that she would entertain as a prostitute, she was her favourite drink was barley wine, which is a very strong beer, which is normally around 8 to 12% proof. The average for a beer was normally between 3 and 5%. Thomas Neal Cream, also known as the Lambeth Poisoner. Now, he would lure prostitutes into his home with the promise of money, warmth, a good time, and what they hope would be a nice drink that reflected his refinement, whether that would be white wine, champagne or sherry. Did he do that? No, of course he didn't. He was a bit of a tight arse, to be honest. Uh, the appropriately named Thomas Neal Cream treated them to a frothy, white-headed bottle of Guinness which he laced with strychnine. Right, now it's time to get technical. Let's get technical, technical. I want to get technical. Let's get technical. Let's get technical by stripping away all the fluff, stuff and nonsense from all those CSI-style crime shows and asking the question, how exactly does it work? This week, Luminol. We've all seen Luminol before on all the crime shows. It's a very clear liquid that is sprayed onto a crime scene. The forensics people turn out the lights, they switch on the fluorescent lights, and that shows up where the blood is. That's Luminol. But what is it? Luminol was invented in 1928 by German chemist H.O. Albrecht, who found that many substances emitted a blue glow. Now, this is known as chemical luminescence. 
This happens when luminol, which is kind of a white pale crystalline, is dissolved in a solvent such as hydrogen peroxide. Now initially it was used in lab work by biologists to detect copper, iron and cyanides. But in 1936, Carl Glue, good name that, I like that, Carl Glue and his partner Carl Fanstiel discovered that luminol reacts with the iron in haemoglobin, which is our red blood cells. And realising its potential, in 1937, German forensic scientist Walter Specht used it for the very first time for the detection of trace elements of blood in a crime scene. Mm. So, what is that blue glow? That is the chemical luminescence. It happens when luminol breaks down, in, in this case, our red blood cells, it rearranges the atoms, and as a short chemical reaction takes place, there's an excess of energy that is expelled as visible light photons. That is the blue glow. It's exactly the same chemical that is seen in fireflies or in glow sticks. So what are the positives of using luminol? Well, uh, it shows blood stains even after they've been cleared up. It only requires trace elements of blood for a reaction to take place. And although on TV shows they love showing you forensic people walking around and illuminating a whole scene with UV light, also known as black light, UV light is not needed to see the blue glow. It's actually a very faint glow, but it is visible to the naked eye. In fact, if you're using a UV light or black light, it actually gives you worse results. So what forensics people actually do is they make the room pitch black and that shows the luminescence clearer. So next time you're watching a CSI style show and they, they show you the whole room and it's illuminated with a big blue glow, know that that's entirely fake. In fact, the blue glow that they're using there is actually just, it's just luminescent paint. That's all it is. And it la that lasts for about 24 hours. So what are the negative elements of using luminol? Well, it has to be sprayed evenly, otherwise the results can make trace elements appear more concentrated in one area than they really are. And unlike in TV shows, I think you'll like this fact, unlike in TV shows, the glow only lasts for 30 seconds. But you can reapply luminol to dried blood or semen. Now to accurately work out where all of the blood is, what forensics teams actually do is they seal up all the windows and the doors to make the room pitch black. They evenly spray the luminol in very small patches and then they photograph the entire scene using a long exposure camera. And what that does is it creates one photo of the entire chemical luminescence. Obviously, because the reaction is only 30 seconds, you can't, you can't get it over a whole scene in 30 seconds. It, it would disappear. Now, the one big downside of using luminol is that the blue glow can be triggered by anything containing copper. That includes some bleaches, liver and oysters, as well as blood in the urine, most animal urine, faecal matter, excessive cigarette smoke in a confined area, and worst of all, horseradish sauce. Mm. So if you want to murder someone, Maybe have a dinner party where you're eating oysters and horseradish sauce, surrounded by several incontinent dogs and a group of heavy-smoking chimps, all who are engaged in a poo-throwing contest. And that is my top tip for the week. Order! Order! The not very honourable Judge Michael presides. 
and states to you all, I am the law. In his very worst, Judge Dredd, Sylvester Stallone impression, and gives you a quick overview of true crime legal lingo. Silence in court. This week, homicide. What is it, and how many variations of killing is there? Now first, we need to understand that there is a clear difference between homicide, murder and manslaughter. Although they're often swapped around, these words are not interchangeable. So homicide. Homicide is the killing of one person by another, having made a decision or committed an action to bring about another person's death, whether accidental or deliberate. That is homicide. Homicide can be split into two categories. Justifiable homicide and criminal homicide. Justifiable homicide includes self-defence, killing in war, euthanasia and capital punishment, and that is where death isn't premeditated by criminal intent. Whereas criminal homicide is divided into two very distinct categories, murder and manslaughter. So murder is the unlawful killing of another person with premeditation, that's a plan to kill, and their actions have criminal intent. Whereas manslaughter is the unlawful killing of another person without premeditation. But the perpetrator's actions are intended to cause serious harm or injury to the other person, but not death, and yet results in the death of another. That is manslaughter. Cool, we're learning a lot today. Right, so what other types of killing are there? Well, obviously, we have suicide. Suicide is when a person kills himself. But this also can be separated into other categories as well. So you have autocide, which is suicide by using an automobile or a car. Medicide, which is aided by a doctor. Murder-suicide, which is a suicide committed immediately after one or more murders. And we have self-immolation, which is suicide as a form of protest, usually by fire. Now, the murder of a relative, they all have their own distinct categories, or so you would think. So, some of these you'll know. If you were to murder your mother, that's matricide. If you were to murder your father, that's patricide. That is matri and patri, which is the Latin terms for mother and father. Now, the word side at the end actually means it's the all Latin terms. It means to either cut or to kill. Now, some of these you've heard before as well. Fratricide and sororicide. That's the murder of a brother. Fratricide, the word fr- which we use in fraternity. And sororicide is the murder of a sister, as we use in sorority. Now, this is where things go a little bit wibbly-wobbly. Obviously, if you were to murder your uncle, and that would be your maternal uncle, that would be an avunculicide. But there is no term for murdering an aunt. The nearest we have is parricide, which is the killing of a close relative. Now, oddly, this makes it even more sexist. Now, there is a term called nepoticide, which is the act of killing a nephew. And yet, there's no term for the killing of a niece. How weird is that? Now, if you were to kill your husband, that is mariticide. That is the act of killing your husband. But this, interestingly, has become a term which has now become gender neutral. So this actually makes reference to the killing of a spouse or a romantic partner, which is kind of forward thinking. Whereas, ironically, there is a term called uxuricide, which is the killing of your wife or romantic partner. But this term is not currently gender neutral. Now, if a parent, whether a mother or a father, were to kill their son or daughter, 
That's filicide. Interesting, filius is the Latin term for son, but not daughter. Whereas if someone were to murder their spouse and their children, that would be familicide. Now, if you were to murder an elderly relative, that would be senicide, which comes from the Latin term senex, meaning old man. Again, quite a sexist term. No reference to elderly ladies there or old people. And yet, if you were to abandon an elderly relative, that would be gerontocide. That would mean you have left them to die or to commit suicide or to be killed. Now, the final topic, that would be the killing of a child. Now, you'd probably think at this point that would be infanticide. But it's not infanticide. This surprised me as well. It's pedicide. Pedicide is the act of killing a child. But it can be split into distinct categories. So we have prolicide, which is to kill your own children. Siblicide, which is the act of killing an infant who is a relative. Feticide, which is to kill a fetus. Infanticide, which is very specifically the killing of a child within its first year of life. And neonaticide, which is the killing of a child within the first 24 hours of its life. Now we've got a few odd ones left over, so I'll throw those those in. So obviously uh, we have amicide, which is the killing of a friend. If you were to be killed by your government, that's democide. If you were to exterminate an entire nation, race, religion or ethnic group, obviously we know that is genocide. But there is one more out there, which is omnicide, which is the act of killing all humans to create the intentional extinction of the entire human species. Oh my God, I hope that doesn't happen. Although I think we're heading that way. Now, you'd be pleased to know I've done my research. Uh, Unfortunately, there is no legal term for the killing of a work colleague or your boss. So that must mean it's legal. Hooray! Judge Michael has spoken and the prostitution rests. Right, now, Michael needs to make some money to buy cakes, wigs, anti-wrinkle cream. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I could probably use a stapler there. Uh, A corset, some coot repellent, and a single condom, which, let's be honest, I'll probably never use unless I stick it on my head. So here's a really awkward space for an annoying advert. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Or maybe there wasn't an advert. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just a pod monkey here. My host tells me nothing. And now, on with the show. So, let's dip our big toe into the strange zone, where I share with you a tidbit of true crime trivia, which will make you go, "Oh, fiddle de dee, Michael, you bloody genius! I didn't know that. Well, 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 my life is complete." This week, we'll discuss fuck all. No, really, we will discuss fuck all. Sweet fuck all. It's an odd phrase, isn't it? Sweet fuck all. But what's so sweet about it? Well, nothing really, as the phrase originates from a truly hideous crime. Eight-year-old Fanny Adams was a lovely, cheerful little girl from a good family, with a loving mother, a hard-working father, five siblings, and two grandparents who lived next door. Who all lived in the picturesque English market town of Alton in Hampshire, which was surrounded by golden fields of hops, twittering birds, and the River Wey, which softly trickled through the town. It was a truly pleasant place, where everyone knew each other, and there was almost no crime. On the afternoon of the twenty-fourth of August, eighteen sixty-seven, Fanny, her sister Lizzie, and her best friend Minnie. Asked their mums if they could go and play in the nearby flood meadow, a beautiful little field full of butterflies and bees, along the banks of the river, which teemed with fish and frogs. With the sun bright, the sky blue, and Fanny's mum burdened by housework, knowing that her child would be safe barely a few minutes from her home, Fanny's mum said yes. It was a perfect day. As the three girls played, as a soft rustle of wind rustled through the trees. At a little after lunch, the girls bumped into twenty-nine-year-old Frederick Baker, a solicitor's clerk who had moved to the village just two months prior, and as an adult who they had seen at the local church meetings, they liked him and trusted him. For an hour, the three girls and Frederick Baker played together. He brought them sweets, gave them money. They picked and ate blackberries. They giggled, they laughed, and they raced up and down the hollow. But feeling a little tired and hungry, with their stomachs gurgling, as the girls decided it was time to go home, Frederick asked Fanny to accompany him to the nearby village of Shaldon, just a short walk away. But being a good girl, eight-year-old Fanny knew not to go off with strangers. So she said no. But Frederick wasn't a man who took no for an answer. And as her friends looked on horrified, Frederick carried Fanny away, into the undergrowth. Lizzie and Minnie ran to Minnie's mother to tell her what had happened. But with the girls being prone to fanciful stories and high jinks, Minnie's mother ignored them. By five p.m. Fanny's mum had become frantic with worry. Her daughter had missed her tea, 
and hadn't been seen for four hours. Alerting the neighbours, a search commenced of the local fields, streams and hollows for Fanny. Quickly it became very clear that she wasn't just missing or injured, but that something truly awful had happened. As scattered across the fields were ripped remnants of her clothes, all of which were caked with blood. But the worst was yet to come. In the nearby hob garden, labourer Thomas Gates, who was tending to his crops, almost threw up as he found, impaled on a hop pole, the decapitated head of Fanny Adams. Fanny had been subjected to a horrific ordeal. Her face had been slashed, her ear cut off, her left arm had been hacked at the elbow, her left leg severed at the hip, her left foot lopped off at the ankle, her right leg ripped from the torso, her entire innards from her pelvis and chest, completely removed and scattered across the neighbouring fields and streams. Her killer had hacked at her liver, her heart, her vagina was missing, and both of her eyes had been gouged out and thrown into the river way. Hearing that Frederick Baker had been seen with the kids, at 9pm that evening, the police went to the solicitor's office where Frederick Baker was still working, and he protested his innocence. But with him being the only suspect, he was searched at the police station, where upon him they found two small bloodstained knives. He also had blood on his shirt sleeves. He had unsuccessfully tried to wash the bloodstains off his trousers, which were still soaked. And in his desk, they found his diary. With an entry marked that day, which simply read, Killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. The trial was held at the Duke's Head Inn in Alton on the 27th of August, 1867. The jury deliberated for just 15 minutes, and although Justice Meller asked the jury to consider a verdict of not responsible by reason of insanity, they returned with a guilty verdict. On the 24th of December, 1867, Frederick Baker was hanged outside Winchester Jail before a crowd of 5,000 people. It became one of the most notorious crimes of its era. Two years later, in 1869, as new rations of tinned mutton, also known as sheep meat, was introduced to British seamen, so unimpressed were they by the indistinguishable, unsightly, mashed-up lumps of meat in the tin, that they often referred to it as Fanny Adams. This later became slang for mediocre rations, and over time, this phrase has been contracted from sweet Fanny Adams to sweet F.A. to sweet fuck all. And although the phrase is still uttered today, the name Fanny Adams is almost forgotten. Hey, what's that plopping through my letterbox? Is it a bill? Hopefully not. Is it junk mail? Very possibly. Is it a flaming dog turd by a disgruntled listener? Mm, Almost definitely. So what is it? It's the Dead Letter Drop. Dead Letter Drop! Yes, folks. Each week I shall read you a rather mundane letter written by an infamous serial killer. This week, Dennis Nielsen. 
the kindly killer from Muswell Hill who murdered 12 young men in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He is also the topic of Murder Mile episodes 11 and 12. Now, this is an extract from a letter written to an unidentified friend by Dennis Nielsen whilst he was serving time in Full Sutton Prison on the 4th of September 2003. Now, owing to prison regulations, he obviously can't discuss the case or the killings in the letter. So although this is quite a mundane letter, I think it really gives you a fascinating insight into Dennis Nielsen as a person. So if you're sitting comfortably, if you've got piles, you're probably not. If you're sitting comfortably, then I shall begin. This is a supplementary reply to your last letter. When I wrote to you, there had been no official acknowledgement that your cheque had even arrived here. The usual procedure is that the prisoner concerned is called up to sign for it in the registration book, and the fact that money or a cheque had arrived is usually noted in the incoming envelope. None of these procedures were even followed. I noted in today's weekly earning statement there is an unexpected entry of £10 in the private cash section. I guess this may be your cheque. The administration of prisoners' monies was never up to much here. The latest example being that my meagre prison wage was £1.50 short last week. Their error, which they have not, as of yet, got round to correcting. This is all routine here, and management has still not engaged the remedy of addressing their offending behaviour. There is no mindset like the prison service mindset. Routines just bumble along to nowhere. Dennis goes on to say, I watched the Channel 5 documentary about Myra Hindley last night. One suspects that any programme with monster in its title is not to be taken seriously as offering any new insight into the subject. TV journalism remains too set in its populist formulas. It revealed no new analysis or enlightening information. It hinged itself on that famous demonic photograph taken at the police station, and that saved millions the bother of ever having to think too deeply about her ever again. He ends the letter by saying, Scientists tell us that an asteroid might strike the Earth on the 21st of April 2014. If I'm still around, I'll look out for it, as the end of the world is something not to be missed. Friendly greetings as always, Des. And he tops off his letter by saying, Yes, what do you think of the new bullring development? Obviously the person he's writing to is from Birmingham, and he's talking about the new... Uh, new changes to the Bullring Centre. Mmm. Fascinating letter there. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, if you're interested in more letters like that, go to a website called Supernaut. They do loads of true crime memorabilia. Now, why do I think that's an interesting insight into Dennis Nielsen? I think that's more him. I think it's more him as he is with people he's comfortable with, whereas elsewhere, his writings tend to be regarded as quite pompous, opinionated and highfalutin. He loved to show other people how superior he was. And if you go back to episode 12 of Murder Mile, uh, one of his victims who actually survived, Carl Stutter, 
wrote to Dennis Nielsen to ask him why he'd attacked him, almost killed him and then brought him back to life. And Dennis Nielsen, in a very cryptic way, wrote, What passed between us was a thin strand of love and humanity. That was Dennis's excuse. And Carla later said, um, I've turned over what he meant until I'm blue in the face and I can't find an answer. Uh, which makes sense because I don't understand it either. Uh, as an example, in his autobiography, which was called Memoirs of a Drowning Boy, which has never been published because the Court of because the Court of European Human Rights deemed that Dennis Nilsson couldn't profit from his crimes, although he is now dead, so that could actually change. Uh, his book is actually written in a very pompous, self-analytical way. So, for you. Here is an example taken from Dennis Nielsen's personal memoir. To save you from having to listen to my awful Dennis Nielsen impression, I'm going to do it in, in an English accent, my own accent. So this is Dennis's quote. I serve my time as an extreme example of human contradiction in the wide continuum of human nature and its actions. I am not contained, mute, or immobile in the glass jar, as some kind of eternal official specimen of popular evil. I am alive. I must live as a man. I seek only to reach out to engage with the other human dimension, which is an anathema to the rigid officials of the retribution machine who are content with the official view of men like me as eternal and evilly subhuman and monstrous. Did you understand that? Nope. Good. Neither did I. But if you want to hear how Dennis Nielsen actually spoke, without having to hear my horrible accent, here's a clip for you taken from the official police interview with Dennis Nielsen after he was arrested in February 1983. In the end, it was when I was, say, two or three bodies under the, under the floorboard began to accumulate, that uh, come the summer, it got hot, and I knew it would be a smell problem. Yes. But uh, I thought, well, I'm going to have to deal with the smell problem. And I thought, what would cause the smell more than anything else? And I came to the conclusion it was the, the innards, the, the soft parts of the body, the yeah. organs and stuff like that. So on a weekend, I would sort of pull up the floorboards. And I found it totally unpleasant. And would get blinding drunk so I could face it and start this section yeah. on the kitchen floor. Mm -hmm. And I'd go, I'd go out and be sick outside in the gardens. What, sort of, what sort of preparation would you have to make for that? You mean preparation? Well, I mean, if you were simply to bring these um, young men's bodies into your kitchen and start to dismember them, that's going to leave an awful mess. That so, doesn't leave a mess. Why does it leave a mess? Well, it could, couldn't it? No, it doesn't. No. It doesn't leave a mess. You see, it, when, when people in death situations where a knife is involved, there's a lot of blood playing around. I'd love to stab you right now, you'd have to stab me. Cool. The heart is pumping away then. There'd be blood splashing all over the place. Yes. Funny enough, in a, in a dead body, there's no blood spurts or anything like that. It congeals inside and forms part of the, the flesh in there and it becomes like anything a butcher shop. There's little or no blood. And finally, dear friends, before we go, to sate your lust for untold true crime stories from London's West End, Here's a story you haven't heard on the podcast before. In a section I call West End Deaths. West End Deaths. This week, the story of Samuel Furness. 
the man who died twice. On Tuesday, the 23rd of January 1933, in his rented shed at number 30 Hawley Crescent in Camden, local builder Mr. Samuel J. Furness died for the very first time. But his death was not to be his last. At 8 pm that very evening, a crowd began to gather around the merchant's yard of Hawley Crescent as thick plumes of smoke poured from the brick shed and flames lapped up the windows. Mr. Wynne, the owner, called the fire brigade, and within minutes the blaze had been extinguished. But it wasn't until they had broken down both doors that they saw the full horror of the scene. A sitting at the desk, in a high chair, slumped over a high wooden table, was the badly charred body of a man, identified by a lodger and Mr. Wynne, as Samuel J. Furness, the local builder who had rented the shed. Unable to see a way out of his spiralling financial situation, Samuel Furness took the ultimate tragic step and ended his life by setting himself alight. He left behind a wife and three children. The only reminder of his final hours being a suicide note, written on a typewriter, which summed up his desperation and simply read, No money, no work, goodbye. Mr. Samuel J. Furness was dead, death by suicide, and the case was closed. Or so you would think. A few factors didn't sit well with the police. Why would a builder, who had access to all manner of tools, blades, tourniquets, and even chemicals, why would he set himself on fire? Why not hang himself? Why not drown himself in the Regent's Canal, which was literally a two-minute walk from his shed? Why didn't he shoot himself with the loaded gun that he owned? Why write a suicide note using paper when you plan to set yourself on fire? And even more bizarrely, how did he manage to remain so still and seated in a high chair at his desk after he had set himself on fire. It simply didn't make sense. When district pathologist Mr. Bentley Purchase examined the badly charred body, he noticed that Samuel Furness had been shot, once in the back and once on the left-hand side of his torso, both having occurred before he died and before he'd set himself alight. Which begged the question, who had shot Samuel Furness? And having been shot, why had Samuel set himself alight? Or if he hadn't set himself alight, had his killer torched his body to make it look like a suicide to cover their tracks? The police knew instantly that this was not a suicide. This was a murder. But then who had killed Samuel Furness? Well, no one. When the pathologist examined the charred body, he deduced that, even though two independent witnesses had identified the smouldering corpse as that of 42-year-old builder Samuel Furness, the teeth were of a considerably younger man, 20 years younger in fact. And in a badly burned overcoat which was found next to the body, 
police found fragments of the owner's post office savings book. They also found a debtor's collection book and an empty wallet, all of which were clearly marked, although slightly scorched, with the name W. Spatchett. Walter Spatchett was a 25-year-old debt collector who'd gone missing that day, having completed his rounds. He'd collected roughly £40, which is about £2,000 today, from his debtors, and had made a sizable withdrawal from his savings account, and then had returned to his shed that day, which he shared with Samuel Furness, a man who Walter had bailed out financially on numerous occasions and was never seen again. It seemed that no one had shot Samuel Furness, nor had anyone set him on fire. Instead, he was alive, he was well, and he was on the run. He had murdered Walter Spatchett, having accrued an unmanageable number of debts, and being short of work, low on cash, frustratingly married, and living a lifestyle that he simply couldn't afford with all of his numerous lady friends. He had committed a murder and had disappeared all around the time that he had renewed his own life insurance policy. Samuel Furness planned to disappear, but this plan was thwarted by his own brother-in-law, who Furness had sent a desperate letter to, asking him to meet him in Southend with a bag full of clothes and giving no explanation. His brother-in-law agreed, but not before he tipped off the police an ambush was set and Furness was captured and arrested. In custody, Samuel Furness later claimed he'd accidentally shot Walter Spatchett, although twice, stolen his money to escape his financial woes, set the shed on fire to cover his tracks, and had thrown his gun into the region's canal. Samuel Furness was charged that evening with murder but he was never brought to trial, as on the night of his arrest, as he rested in his prison cell, he complained that he was cold and asked the officer on duty if he could have his overcoat to keep himself warm. At 7am the next morning, as the officer checked his cell, he saw Samuel Furness raising a small bottle to his lips that he had hidden in the lining of his overcoat should he ever need it. That bottle contained hydrochloric acid. Samuel Furness died 24 hours later in St Pancras Hospital, his last words from his burning lips being, My dear wife! Oddly, Samuel Furness died on the 16th of January 1933, 13 days after he had originally died. But this second suicide was to be his last, as Samuel Furness was dead. And his financial windfall, designed to save his family from spiralling debts, was not to be, as having failed to check the small print in his life insurance policy, it was deemed to be null and void, as although it covered him for death, it didn't cover him for suicide. And now you know. So, my beloved friends, that was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. I hope it was original, different, and an interesting companion to your regular Murder Mile. Don't forget, the new exciting Murder Mile multi-part series is coming in May, exact date to be confirmed, and next week there will be some more Mini Mile. 
And if you have any comments about Mini Mile, if there's any original questions you're desperate to know the answer to, or any unusual topics you'd love me to research and discuss, let me know. You can contact me via email, my website or social media. A big thank you goes out this week to my new Patreon supporters, who are Joe Westwood, Kendall Passmore, Reich Back, Rennie Roskamp, Jenny Pearson, Rosemary Hayes, Anne Lee and Sarah Grabravaz. And also a big thank you to my current Patreon supporters who stuck with Murdmile throughout Thick and Thin. And of course, all of my loyal listeners whose love and support truly has brought Murdmile back from the dead. And so to everyone who sent me lovely messages of support, I thank you, I love you, and this episode is for you. Mini Mile will be back next week. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. Love to you all. Tatty bye. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.